0: I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Matthew, chapter 22. And this morning we will continue our verse by verse study of this gospel, beginning in verses 34 through 40. While you're turning there, may I give you a few things to think about as we prepare our hearts for this text this morning. We live in a culture that speaks much about the concept of love. And yet I would submit to you that our culture knows very little of what love really is, no real grasp of it. For most people, it's nothing more than a rather shallow and sentimental type of a feeling and emotion. And certainly it is the theme of countless songs, usually sung by artists that can't stay married. And they're usually singing about that very theme. People that enjoy most of the music that's out there today also have very little understanding of love and they can't stay married. And probably one of the reasons why is they get their definition from the lyrics of songs That, once again, know nothing about love. And for most people, love is is little more than lust in search for its next victim. And sadly, this cultural mindset has slithered its way into the church. And as a result, very often what we find in the church of Jesus Christ is the same kind of sentimental schmaltzy type of a love, a shallow love, as shallow as water on a plate when it comes to loving God and loving each other. And certainly millions of people have convinced themselves that they truly love God. They sing about him on Sunday mornings, but in truth, very few people know of the self-sacrificial love, the denying of self type of love that God requires. So this morning we're going to learn much about what it means to love God and what it means to love one another. But in order to do so, we must first understand God's law. And we're going to learn a bit more of that as well. Now, let me give you the context of this passage so that it will come alive for you. This now is the third and final question of entrapment that the religious leaders are giving to Jesus, the Pharisees try one last time here to humiliate their hated foe. And so they are going to send forth their Goliath, so to speak, to fight against the son of David. The man that they are about to send would be the champion of the Pharisees. They are going to send forth the most erudite of all of the scholars the most scholarly man of the law, and he is now going to approach the Son of God, their Messiah. And in a final act of desperation, he will endeavor to rout the Savior with one last question, a question that they were all sure would somehow expose Jesus as being unorthodox, as being a heretic, as being an imposter so that they could reject him and have even more excuse to kill him. Now, you will recall that the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees, all of which hated one another, were all galvanized together in their hatred of Jesus because Jesus was a threat to their power and to their prestige, and he had certainly exposed their pride and hypocrisy. But you might also need to understand that these religious people, we truly confused by much of what Jesus taught. They didn't understand him. And one of the reasons for this is over the generations, the rabbis had, had added many hundreds of silly rules and regulations on top of the law that the people had lived by. All kinds of man-made interpretations of the law of God. And by the time Jesus now reaches them, there are layer upon layer upon layer of ridiculous distortions of God's law that had become accepted dogma by most of the people. So frankly, the people by this time really have no point of reference of what truth really is. It's much like the Greek word harmatia that we have in the New Testament. It means missing the mark. And what they had done is they had shot the arrow, shall we say, at the bullseye of God's truth, and they had missed. And so what did they do? They moved the bullseye and they kept shooting and kept missing. And now the bullseye, instead of being here, is somewhere over here. And so by the time Jesus comes along and tells them here is the standard of divine righteousness, they're all confused because they thought that it was somewhere over in here. So. They. They saw much of what Jesus was saying as controversial, if not idiotic. Now, important background here again, before we get to the text, the rabbis were infatuated with a particular exegetical tool that they had for interpreting the Old Testament, one that they thought would really clarify much of what God wanted them to know and all of us to know. Some called it letterism. And here's how it worked. They believed that since the Hebrew text of the Decalogue in the book of Numbers, which is the Ten Commandments, since it's consisted of six hundred and thirteen separate letters, the rabbis also assumed that there were six hundred and thirteen separate laws in the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible. And they divided these 613 laws into two categories. They had the heavy laws and the lighter laws. The heavy laws were to be the binding laws and the lighter laws a little less binding. In fact, they believed that there were 248 affirmative laws, one for every part of the human anatomy. They thought that there were 248 parts of the human anatomy. And then there were also 365 Negative laws, one for every day of the year. Well, that's rather clever, rather novel. This is what they believe. Now, there's one big problem. The big problem was that none of them could agree upon precisely which laws were heavy and which ones were light. And so you have this never ending bickering between the rabbis. By the way, this is much like modern day religious denominations that proudly articulate their unique take on some Bible doctrine, or they raise their banner high and beat some drum on some personal preference. And like these rabbis, they will endlessly debate some fanciful system that they've come up with. And so anyway, these rabbis now, they they love to pontificate on these particular issues. And like proud peacocks, they love to strut around and show off the plumage of their Great theological erudition. Therefore, with this kind of religious jockeying going on, not only were the Pharisees clueless as to what the true and sacred issues were pertaining to God's law. But they also believed that Jesus answer to the simple question that they are about to ask would undoubtedly be off the wall. If we could use that term, because most everything else he said was off the wall. And so they thought, well, we're going to prove him to be unorthodox here. We're going to discredit him in the eyes of the multitude. So what do the Pharisees do? Well, they huddle together in the shadows of the temple. Remember now, Jesus is in it's in the Passion Week. Just uh, uh, literally it's getting down to the hours before he will be um, turned over to the authorities and he will be crucified. So. The Pharisees huddle together, if I can use a football metaphor here. They huddle together. They have absolutely zero offense at this point. Jesus has pushed them all the way back on their own one yard line. And so they're plotting their final play here. And they're bringing out now their star running back that, shall we say, has never been tackled. And he is going to run against the Savior. Now, with that in mind, let me read the text to you, beginning in verse 34 of Matthew, chapter 22. But when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, this morning, I would like to break this text down into three very simple phases. First of all, this morning, we're going to remember the law. I want to rehearse that a bit with you so you have this in your mind. Secondly, we're going to regard the greatest and foremost commandment that Jesus talks about here. And thirdly, we're going to regard the second greatest commandment. So, first of all, we want to remember the law. And I feel this is important because many times there's a great deal of confusion about this in Christian circles. Especially in light of this movement today. This dominion theology where there's this idea that somehow we are to elect enough Christian people to kind of reinstate the law of God and really turn the whole world around and ultimately bring it back to the um, Edenic splendor, so to speak, of days gone by and then hand over the world to Jesus someday. So here's a real brief refresher course on the law, which is God's revealed will to man given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, first of all, keep in mind, there's really four features of God's law. First of all, you have what we would call the twofold summarization. And this would be what Jesus responds to here. The twofold summarization is that you love the Lord with all with all of your being and you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And then secondly, we see a tenfold summarization, which would be the Decalogue, or it's commonly called the Ten Commandments, the the tablets of stone that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. You read about it in Exodus 19 and 20. And in the Decalogue, you will find and frankly, all through the Old Testament, if you keep his law, you're going to be blessed. If you violate his law, he's going to judge you. And in that Decalogue, you have the first three that tell us how to love God perfectly and then you have the Sabbath and then the last four uh, laws are telling us how to love our neighbor. So you have the twofold summarization, the two and then the tenfold summarization. And then you have what we would call the manifold part of the law. This would be the words of the covenant, as is expressed in Exodus 24, seven. This would be the entire book of Leviticus, which goes into great precise detail, which is an expansion of the law. Now, all of this was written down and placed in a receptacle that was tucked in the side of the Ark of the Covenant. And certainly the tablets of stone were inside the Ark, but the law would have been written down and placed on the side. In fact, Deuteronomy 31, 16, God says that I want you to take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God. And here's why that it may remain there as a witness against you. So, in other words, God gave us the law to expose sin in the light of his divine standard of righteousness. Moreover, we as we study the Old Testament, we see that the lawgiver gave us his law not only to to curb and and shall we say punish the depravity of man, but also to prove to us that we could never live up to his standards. It was a witness against us and therefore it would drive us to him crying out for mercy and for grace that he would ultimately give us through the blood of the savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you think of it this way, the ultimate purpose of the law is to liberate man from the bondage of sin and frankly to bring us into a state of permanent blessing and, and fullness of life. In fact, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 119, he, he extols just the glory of the law and, and the virtues of the law. He says that, that, that God's law is, is my delight. It's the object of my love. He venerates it as truth. It's a means of peace and liberty. It's a treasure above all earthly wealth. And he goes on and on and on. Now, the Jews also understood that there were three divisions of the law. This is real important, and this is good for background here. If We're going to understand this text in a moment. You had, first of all, the moral law, secondly, the judicial law, and thirdly, the ceremonial law. Now, the moral law regulated how we were to love the Lord, our God, with all of our being and how to love our neighbor. This was based on the Ten Commandments. And then you had the judicial law that regulated how Israel functioned as a theocracy, as a nation. And the judicial law, therefore, regulated everything from taxes, it, it settled disputes, it talked about how that you were even to, to care for your livestock and, and, and the standards of dress and so on. And then you had the ceremonial law, which regulated Israel's worship. Now, many people today are confused about this. They say, well, are, are we supposed to keep the law today? Well, yes, the moral law, but not the judicial or the ceremonial. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. You see, Jesus did not come to obliterate the law, but to fulfill it. And you ask, well, how so? Well, first of all, you want to keep in mind that when Jesus came to fulfill the law, it didn't mean that he merely met its demands perfectly, though he did, but rather Now, catch this. Jesus was fully the law. He was the incarnation of the law. He was the theme of the Old Testament that came to earth. He came and dwelt among men, not merely to be an example of righteousness, but he was righteousness incarnate. He was the word of God, the divine logos that existed before all time, even from everlasting. That's why in John 1, 1, we read that in the beginning was the word or the logos and the word was with God and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. Now, how did Jesus fulfill the law? Well, he fulfilled the moral law with the righteousness of his life, the very righteousness that he himself required, he fulfilled. He fulfilled the judicial law when he came and died on the cross, when Israel committed the ultimate act of rebellion by rejecting their Messiah. He fulfilled the ceremonial law that governed Israel's worship when he, as the Lamb of God, became the propitiation for our sin. He satisfied the divine wrath. He became the atonement for sin. And so think of it this way all of the Old Testament Ceremonies, all of the regulations were merely symbols or pictures pointing to the coming Messiah. All of them illustrations of God's redemptive plan. And now in Christ, those things are no longer necessary. We no longer sacrifice lambs and bulls and goats and those types of things. Because what was pictured became a reality. He was the incarnation of the law. He was the personification of the ceremonial law and so on. So bottom line, the judicial and ceremonial laws were fulfilled in Christ. They're now obsolete. But the moral law is still being fulfilled and it's being fulfilled, dear friends, through us, through the church, because we are united with him. In Romans eight, beginning in verse three, we read that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the Old Testament was the shadow of good things to come. But it goes on to say that in Christ we are we have the very image of those things in Hebrews 10 1. So, friends, today we have more than a symbol of truth. We have the truth itself in Christ. That's why in John 1, verse 16, we read, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, with that background, we look secondly at... The greatest and foremost commandment. Now, notice what happens here again. The Pharisees are certain that Jesus is going to respond with his unique system of what is affirmed and what is or what is affirmative, what is negative, what is heavy, what is light and all of this type of thing. And they were certain that whatever he said was going to be like everything else that he said. And it was going to be kind of off the wall, kind of unorthodox and therefore the subject of ridicule. And so in verse thirty five, one of them, a lawyer, asks him the question, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? In other words, Jesus, here's your bait. Let's see what a foolish statement, what a foolish system you're going to have. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Now, for instance, this would, would have been very familiar to them in that day because all faithful Jews, quoted the Shema every day, Shema in Hebrew means here. And it was the first first word of Deuteronomy six, beginning in verse four, where we read Hear, Shema here, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And it goes on from there. So this text, along with three others, was one that was written on a small piece of parchment. And it was placed in a little bitty box called a phylactery, and it was worn on the foreheads and on the left wrist of the Jews on the left arm of the Jews. And and uh, when especially when the Jewish men would pray. And frankly, what they did is they took literally Deuteronomy six, eight, where God said, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. They took it literally. By the way, later in Matthew 23, verse five, Jesus rebukes them for such a ridiculous and ostentatious display of their self-righteousness. If you go to Israel today, and I remember when I was there, I noticed this a great deal. You will see that even today among the Orthodox Jews, they will wear the phylacteries, especially when they pray. And they also have mezuzahs, which are small little boxes Many of them are decorated in various ways, and they are attached to the the side of the doorposts. And even in the restaurants, in the motel rooms, wherever you go, you will find a mezuzah. And in them contains the copies of Deuteronomy 6:4 through 9 and Deuteronomy 11:13 through 21. Because again, they took literally what God said in Deuteronomy 6:9, where He says, "And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." So you can even go, as I remember, to a restaurant, and every time the waitress walks through the door back to the cook to bring some food, she kisses her hand, kisses the mezuzah, kisses her hand again, walks in. When she comes out, she does it again. And, and you just see people doing this all the time. And, you know, that's very often what happens. It just becomes ritual. And what God was saying is, I want my law I want your love for me to be so prominent in your life that it is that it is as if it was on your doorpost, It was on your head. It was on your arms. I want you to love me. But unfortunately, all of this turned into merely a ridiculous ritual. So Jesus answers them by saying that the greatest, the foremost commandment is to love the Lord with the totality of your being. He says, your heart, your soul, your mind. By the way, this is not a reference to three separate technical divisions of our human nature. There's only two parts of us. There's the material and the immaterial. There's the physical. There's the spiritual. In fact, in Mark's gospel, he even adds the word strength. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. So what God is saying here is I want you to love me with all that you are. With your heart, which is the inner core of our being, the seat of our will, with our soul, which would have to do here with the emotional uh, nucleus of, of all that we are. In fact, when Jesus was in the garden of, of Gethsemane in Matthew twenty six thirty eight, when he was arrested, he said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. We're also to love him with all of our mind which could also be translated might as it is Deuteronomy six, five, which would be a Hebrew term that that encompasses both the intellect, our minds, but also the willful, determined choices that flow from our thinking. So, beloved, this is the greatest and foremost command that God gives to all of us. He is not interested merely in belief. Don't you remember that even the demons believe and they shudder, as we read in James 2.19. God is not interested in hollow words, in external ritual. He's not interested in churchianity, where you just kind of play this religious game and you put on some religious veneer on Sunday mornings. But he wants us to be utterly consumed with a genuine love that engages our intellect, our emotions and our will. All of that, all that we are. This is a love, by the way, that can be measured by sacrificial obedience. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. And it's said today, many Christians Really don't even know what the commandments are. They've been in church all of their life and, and they really have very little idea of what God really requires of them. You see people that, that claim to be Christians, but they're not involved in the body life of the church. They're not involved in service. They're not involved in evangelism. They have no secret devotion to God. They have no prayer life. They're attached to the world. You can see it by how the women dress. You can see it by the things that the men worship, especially all of the sports and those types of things. You look at their homes and their homes are in shambles. You've got child centered homes where the whole family orbits around the little stinkers. You've got people that absolutely know nothing of what it means to train up their children In the discipline, and the instruction of the Lord, they leave it to other people to do that. Their marriages are in shambles. And you will certainly see it when difficult times come into their lives. When that happens, their lives fall apart because they don't understand that God is more interested in our character than he is our comfort. Oh, but I attend church. Yeah, that's like wearing a phylactery on your forehead. Wow, isn't God impressed? You do some religious things from time to time. Isn't God impressed with that? Well, obviously, He's not. Most of the times, the things that we do are meaningless dribble in the eyes of a holy God. God wants us to love Him. Aheb in Hebrew. It's it's the the Hebrew version of, of, of agape love. It's the love of choice. It's not the love of just emotion. It's a purposeful act of the will that encompasses all that we are. May I remind you that in the Greek language, there are four different words for love, and each one of them have important nuances of distinction. You have the phileo love, the brotherly love that we would have towards a close friend. But that kind of love is different than a storge love that we would have towards a family member. I'm going to love my family in a little bit different way than I'm going to love you as a friend. And then you have the eros love, the, 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 the type of uh, romantic love that leads to sexual desire. It's not used in the New Testament, but it is another Greek form of love. And then you have the ultimate love, the agape love. And this is this is that love that is the love of, 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 a, of a passionate, unwavering commitment to seek the highest good of another person. It's a love that encompasses the will, not necessarily the emotion. It's it's the type of love that is action, not mere abstraction in thought. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, we see that all 15 characteristics of love that are given in that text are given in verb form. It's something that we do, something that we live out, not something that we just kind of feel or that we talk about. And so here in verse 37 he uses this agape love in the grammar, in the original language. He gives us the idea that this is to be a continuous attitude of of love, of benevolence, of good, goodwill. It implies a meekness, a gentleness indicative of all kingdom citizens. One that that would patiently endure whatever God brings our way. This is the type of love that denies self. It's the type of love that would willingly take up a cross and die for that object of affection. By the way, this is also a love that we are to have even toward those who hate us. This is the type of love that extinguishes thoughts of revenge. This is the type of love that starves the cravings of the flesh and of pride that would demand vengeance. In Romans five, for example, we read that this is the love that God demonstrated to us and he died for us while we were yet sinners. There was nothing lovable about us. And also, this is the very love he has poured out within our hearts as believers, that through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we now have the capacity to love in like manner. This is the type of love that unregenerate people know nothing about. What a stark contrast to the phony love of the Pharisees. And dear friends, what a stark contrast to the schmaltzy love that is so indicative of contemporary evangelicalism. Let me pause for a moment and ask you, because I've had to ask myself this. Do you really love the Lord with all that you have, all that you are? Is is, is he really the object of your love? And if that is the case, then why do we have so little to do with Him? If we really love the Lord with all of our being, if He truly is the object of our affections, why do we have so little time for Him? Why do we not have a secret devotion to Him? Why do we not long to hear His voice in His Word? When you love someone, don't you want to be with them? Don't you want to hear their voice, to look in their eye, to hear what they have to say and to serve them? Why are we not found often in the closet of passionate prayer, communing with the lover of our soul, if we truly love God with all of our being? And why is it the dominant theme of our prayers that we become more conformed to the image of the one that we love to please him more to glorify him more echoing the words of the psalmist that would say say nearness to thee is my only good as you examine your heart is this indicative of your private life also those that truly love the lord are going to experience genuine contrition On a routine basis, genuine contrition over sin that is flowing from a sense of forgiveness. This is the type of things, dear friend, when when the when the heart is constantly in a state of tension, because on the one hand, our hearts are are constantly broken over our sinfulness and our inability to please like we would like the one that we love so dearly. And yet, at the same time, in the midst of that brokenness, there is this inexpressible joy over the grace and the mercy that is ours and the love that he continues to lavish upon us difference. This is the stuff that makes up Christian love. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And that's what we must ask ourselves. Do we love the Lord more than earthly honors? Do we love the Lord more than domestic comforts? Do we love the Lord more than worldly riches? Do we love the Lord more than our our family? Do we love the Lord more than life itself? That is what is the greatest commandment. But notice also what the Lord replies with respect to the second greatest commandment. Beginning in verse 39, he says, The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Friends, this is an astounding statement. You must understand that all through Scripture, we see the premium that God places on loving our neighbor. By the way, even if that neighbor is our enemy and despises us. This is the opposite of the Go ahead and make my day mentality of our culture. Indeed, there is never a justification for personal retaliation for revenge. In fact, in Proverbs 24 and verse 29, God says, do not say thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. In fact, in Proverbs 21 or 25, 21, we read, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Well, once again, Jesus now hits the Pharisees right between the eyes with the truth, exposing their hypocrisy. Now, here's why. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees had conveniently twisted the law, even at this point, to accommodate their own wicked agendas. Here's what they had done. They had twisted the law in three ways at this point. They, first of all, redefined the word neighbor To only refer to people they liked to be around. You Catch that? Those who were kind and gentle towards them. And secondly, they omitted the phrase as yourself. So the law would simply read, you shall love your neighbor. And then thirdly, in lieu of the words as yourself, they added and hate your enemy. All right, so here's how they would read the law. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And Jesus knows all of this. He's the omniscient, holy God. And he is once again going to expose them at the very core of who they are. And so for them, the law said, love only those who you deem lovable. Those who like you. Those who you prefer. Those who you enjoy and hate those who you think deserve to be hated. And of course, this is why they hated the Gentiles and they called the Romans dogs and and the half breed Samaritan Well, they would walk all the way around the territory, just not walk through the Samaritans, because after all, they're such wretched people and they'd shake the dust off their garments and they would never offer them a drink of water like Jesus did with the Samaritan woman at the well. And they hated all those sinners that were beneath them. All of the common rabble, all the common folks the Pharisees hated. They despised the ignorant and those who didn't know the law as well as they did. And they hated all non-Jews. They hated all criminals, all prostitutes. They hated the adulterers. They hated the filthy tax collectors. In fact, they wouldn't speak to them. They wouldn't eat with them. They wouldn't help them. And they rejoiced in their calamity. Folks, that's not what God wants us to do. Are you getting the point? For them, they could say it this way. Hate them all for the glory of God. That was their mentality. Well, this was the wicked sectarianism that characterized the Jews. By the way, in in Luke 18, the Pharisees thanked God that they were not like the swindlers, the unjust, and the adulterers. Yet Jesus came along later in Matthew 5. You will recall there he said that you are deceived by your own self-righteous lies. You are equally as unrighteous. In verse 43, here's what he says. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you. By the way, the grammar here is very important when he says, but I say to you, the word I is in the emphatic form. And and he's emphasizing the fact that, that that here is the superior authority over all of the false teachers that have distorted the law before me. Here's what I say to you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, friends, this was a massive blow to their authority, not to mention to their sanctimonious perversion of the divine standard. As a footnote, the second commandment of loving your neighbor as yourself has fallen prey to many false teachers, one of which would be a modern-day false teacher, Robert Shuler, if you're familiar with him. He teaches that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And what what that means is we are to love ourselves versus we are to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. In fact, in his book, Self-Esteem, The New Reformation, Here's what he says, and I quote, what do I mean by sin? Well, the answer, any human condition that robs God of glory by stripping one of his children of their right to divine dignity. He goes on to say any act or thought that robs myself of self-esteem. <coughs> Why, well, this is radically different than first John three, four that says that sin is lawlessness. It is a violation of God's holy standard. He goes on to say. About the concept of hell, for example, quote, hell is the loss of pride that naturally follows separation from God, the ultimate and unfailing source of our soul's sense of self-respect, End quote. Well, of course, this type of snake oil of self-esteem is peddled in many religious medicine shows of many other charlatans who insist that it will cure whatever ails you. And tragically, tragically, it has found a ready market in the evangelical church where you will hear just little sound bites of 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 these types of things that has replaced, frankly, sound doctrine. And according to the doctrine of self-esteem, here's how it works. If I feel good about myself, I'm going to act properly. I'm going to respect authority. I'm going to have fewer emotional problems. I'm going to be more respect or successful. I'll be less likely to commit crimes. I'll act um, in a more moral way. I will be less likely to fail academically. And bottom line, I'll just be less dysfunctional, whatever that is. You see, there's no such thing as sinful people. The problem that we have today is that people just think poorly of themselves. By the way, again, as a brief digression here, dear friends, the truth is, and I hope you hear this. The essence of inferiority judgments are defined in the scriptures as being rooted in concepts, not of self or poor self-esteem, but rather being rooted in concepts of selfishness and pride and the fear of man and ignorance of sound doctrine. Never as a result of poor self-esteem. In fact, in Romans twelve three. As Christians, we're told not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Beloved, our dignity as Christians comes only when we rightfully confess our depravity. Do you see that? Our esteem is not in ourselves, but in Christ. It is in his righteousness, not ours. That is what has freed us from the bondage of sin and from human futility. In him, we are more than conquerors. In ourselves, we are nothing. Now, back to the second commandment. Frequently throughout the Old Testament, we are told to love our neighbor. In fact, God devotes a whole chapter in Leviticus 19 by going into great detail defining Various ways that we are to live this out in our daily life, what it means to really love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. And by the way, we love ourselves a great deal. Do we not? Of course we do. By the way, a few of those examples out of Leviticus 19 there we read, for example, that you are to provide for the needy by not gleaning the corners of your fields nor gathering all of your harvest. This was their way of helping the needy. Uh, you, you weren't supposed to glean all of your vineyards. Uh, you weren't to uh, gather all of the fallen fruit. You were to leave that for the needy and for the stranger. Uh, you were to do things like pay wages immediately when somebody worked for you. You were not to curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind. Well, you'd have to be pretty cruel to do that. But God knew that that's the proclivity that many people have. Uh, there, we're told not to be partial to the poor, no de- nor defer to the great. Uh, we're not to slander our neighbor. We're not to threaten their life. He even says that you shall not hate your neighbor in your heart. <coughs> we want to again ask ourselves, do we love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves? In 1 Corinthians 13, we're told that if we don't have this kind of love, then our religion emits the terrible sounds of a noisy gong and a clanging symbol. There in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are to love others as Christ loves us, meaning that love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. Beloved, if if we are going to see ourselves as, shall we say, soldiers of love, we must fortify our heart by surrounding our, our hearts with, with four great garrisons of love that's found, frankly, in the hyperbole of verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. And here's what they are. Love is going to bear all things. It's going to, secondly, believe all things. It's going to, thirdly, hope all things. And fourthly, it's going to endure all things. That's why later on in verse eight, it says love never what and never fails. This is the love that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 22. And so here again, we see the supreme value God places not only on, on loving him, but also on loving others. And by the way, if we love the Lord the way we should, we will automatically love others the way we should. That's why indeed, verse 40 Jesus says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. You see, all of the Old Testament was built upon these foundational commands. And it was for this reason that Paul wrote in Romans 13, beginning in verse 8. He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Isn't that great? He goes on to say, for this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. I love the way John MacArthur put it. He said, and I quote, if people loved perfectly, there would be no need for law. Isn't that a great thought? be no need for law. He goes on to say, because the person who loves others will never do them harm. In the same way, the believer who loves God with all of his being will never take his name in vain, will never worship idols, will never fail to obey, worship, honor, and glorify him as Lord. So, friends, this morning, may I humbly ask you all, as I've had to ask myself, do I really love the Lord with all of my being Or is my love a shallow and phony love like the Pharisees? I want to close with some thoughts that I put to meter and rhyme that hopefully summarize the marvelous gift of the law of God and the one who fulfilled it for us, which is an incomprehensible act of sacrificial love. There was a day when Sinai shook and thunderous clouds did roll. When lightning pierced a pitch-black smoke and a blaring trumpet told a day when fear didst grip men's hearts and cause them all to cower and when suddenly the sky didst part and descending in a fire the Lord did come to speak to man and clearly state his will to move along redemption's plan some day his blood to spill God revealed his holy law his righteous standard pure To prove our sin and show us all what grace must then procure. Unable to obey a law, their hearts could not fulfill. They needed one who once for all could righteousness instill. And then in time the Savior came, fulfiller of the law. Jesus Christ didst bear our blame. And now we stand in awe. Grace and peace are ours through Christ. Oh soul, how can it be? Our sin, our guilt, He paid the price that we might be set free. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank You and we praise You for the clarity of Your Word. And we thank You for the power that it has in our lives. And Lord, I pray for all of us who know and love You that we will love You even more. Lord, that we would hate what You hate and love what You love. And that that would be translated in the way that we love our wives and our husbands and our friends and our children and our parents. And Lord, I pray for those within the sound of my voice who know nothing of such love. I pray that they will see the love of God that begins with the law. And Lord, when they see that they have violated the law and they are unable to fulfill it in any way and that they are deserving of of eternal judgment, Lord, I pray that you will cause them to cry out for your mercy. Lord, would that you save them. So, Lord, we commit them to you and plead on their behalf. Lord, thank you for meeting with us this day. Bless your word to our hearts and may it, may it manifest many, many fruits in our lives. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. And for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to Pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615 746 0113.